your Bibles with you, would you take it open to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans 12, we'll be reading the first two verses, which are also printed for you in the bulletin, and you're welcome to follow along there. We're taking a six-week break now from our, our series in the book of Galatians. We'll come back to that in the beginning of January. But today is a day to focus on Thanksgiving and to prepare our hearts for what's coming this week, to prepare our hearts to be thankful and to give thanks Uh, to do so not merely outwardly, but to to feel a good sense of thanksgiving. And so I want to read these verses and and preach from Romans 12, 1 and 2 to help us to prepare our hearts and our minds for this. This is the reading of God's word. Would you join me in standing as we hear? Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray one more time. Father, this is your word which was given to us under the inspiration of your spirit, And so we pray that we will now have the help of your spirit as we read and as we listen. We pray that it will be you speaking your words to us, encouraging our hearts, spurring us on to love and good deeds and transformation through the renewal of our minds. Will you do this for the good of your church and for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you may have heard the news this week that the editors and the staff of the Oxford English Dictionary have announced their choice for the 2013 Word of the Year. Perhaps you know every year they, they announce a word. They sort of collect all the new words that are, that are being created. You know, language is not, not static. It's dynamic. It's ever-changing. It's evolving. And, and they, pick, they pick from the list of new words that have been formed this year, they pick one and announce it as the Word of the Year. And perhaps you know the 2013 word of the year is selfie. Selfie. Perhaps you don't know what that is. Hopefully, someone doesn't. Let me explain. A selfie noun is a photograph of yourself taken by yourself with a mobile phone or other handheld device and uploaded to social media. And I think we have to agree, whether you've ever taken a selfie or not, I think we have to agree that That's a really appropriate choice of word of the year for us. At sort of this time where we are culturally, 2013, here in in first world nations, uh, England and and the United States, it's a pretty uh, appropriate word. It captures sort of the the zeitgeist of our culture. It captures the spirit of what it is to be an American, of what we are feeling. There's, There's no denying the fact that we are as a whole, pretty obsessed with ourselves. We're pretty obsessed with with me. We're pretty obsessed with appearance. No matter how hollow it may be, we are obsessed with imagery. And so I I couldn't help but think, as they announced that this week, that there was a certain irony that they were announcing this right before the holiday season began, the week before Thanksgiving, which is this one time of the year that that as a whole culture, not just believers, but but anyone in the culture, gathers to sort of say, okay, we're going to set aside at least one day to focus on others, to to not be so materialistic, but to give thanks for the blessings that we have in our life. 
to give thanks for all that we have, for all that's been provided for us. It's what we do on Thanksgiving. And yet, there's some poignancy in that, that, that to say that America will never be a people who's truly able to give thanks and that truly has a thankful spirit so long as we are the nation of the selfie. That's just who we are. And so this morning, in turning to Romans 12, I want to give us some help how we can approach Thanksgiving and the holidays this year. And I want to say three things about the nature of Thanksgiving. Not the holiday, Thanksgiving, so much as the attitude of Thanksgiving. First, Thanksgiving begins with a view of God's mercy. Second, Thanksgiving is marked by worship. And third, Thanksgiving always leads to transformation. It begins with a view of God's mercy. It's marked by worship, and it always leads towards transformation. So first of all, thanksgiving begins with a view of God's mercy. Look at Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. If you're reading in a different translation, perhaps you have the NIV in front of you, it will say, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy. And there's two things in that sentence that stand out. First, he says, therefore, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and I remember one of the first Bible study principles that I learned when I was first uh, coming up. I think I was in college, learning how to study the Bible, learning how to do a little bit more uh, formal study rather than just read it and think, but, but how to get the meaning out of it. One of the first principles I learned was this. Anytime you encounter the word therefore, you always stop and you ask, what's the therefore therefore, right? We want, we want to identify that. So what's this therefore therefore? Well, we know what it is. It's a, it's a logical word. It, it shows a progression. It shows a connection between two things. And, and I think this therefore in Romans 12.1 is the biggest, most ambitious therefore in the whole Bible. It, it's the most ambitious. Them. It, it looks back at the entirety of the first 11 chapters of Romans. Of all that Paul has said, and he has said a lot, we know these are some of the most theologically dense, engaging, enriching, teaching chapters in all the scriptures where he's already surveyed for us, he surveyed the righteousness of God. He surveyed sort of a catalog of human depravity. He, he's described for us the effect that the law of God has both on Jew and on Gentile. He's given us the, the solution of justification by faith in Jesus Christ. He's described reconciliation, the fact that we now have peace with God because we are justified by faith. He's, faith. he's described the gift of the Spirit. He's described God's plan in his sovereignty for all things, including his plan for Israel. It's been an enormous 11 chapters that Paul has just concluded. And now he says, therefore, and so he's summarizing everything that's just been said. He says, in view of God's mercies, that's chapters 1 through 11, in view of all of his mercy that he has given us. And now he's launching into chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, the, the second half of the book, which is filled with real practical teaching, real practical instruction for the life of the church. How do we therefore live? And the fact that these two are connected by this word therefore shows us there's a, a logical connection here. It's not just that, that Paul wanted to talk theology for a little while, he was really enjoying ribbing on that, but now he also needs to take care of a little pastoral business before he concludes it shows that there's a connection there, and I think it shows us two things. First, it shows us that good theology always leads to godly living. Good theology always leads to godly living. Good theology always ends with a therefore. See, Paul could have written chapters 1 through 11, and he could have stopped there. He could have said, 
grace and peace, the Apostle Paul signed his letter off and be done, but he doesn't. He says, therefore, and now he launches into how do we then live? There's a certain type of life that will flow out of good theology. He says good theology leads to loving and serving one another, being zealous to serve the Lord in practical ways, being patient and trusting the Lord in the midst of our trials, humbly bearing with one another in the church, in the midst of difficulty, putting others' needs in front of our own. There's all these practical things that he's going to say, and all of these are based on, they're coming out of good theology. And so if you have good theology, it leads to a certain type of life. If you have a good understanding of God's sovereignty over all things and his providence in all the small areas of life, then that leads to a certain type of living when life's not going the way you want it to go. It leads towards a certain type of humility, a certain type of trust, a certain type of of stability. You have a a ballast in your soul that keeps you from being shaken and tossed overboard when things are rough. And we need to remember this because there's always going to be I think, a certain type of person who, who thinks that the sum and substance of Christian maturity is going to be to know good theology. And that's it. And that if you know good theology and if you uh, can defend and describe uh, deep theological truths and you can do it better than other people, that that proves, therefore, that, that you are a mature believer, that you have gotten to the, the sort of the apex or the, the climax of the Christian life and there's nowhere else to go. But it's not so because there is a therefore. Paul says that's the foundation that needs to be laid. That is the beginning. But he then goes on and says, therefore, this is the type of life that good theology will lead to. Having good theology, if it is truly good, leads to a certain kind of life. So that's number one. Good theology leads to godly living. But here's the second thing we learn. Godly living is based on good theology. Now, that sounds very similar to the first thing I just said, but it's different. It's the opposite. First of all, good theology leads to godly living. Second, godly living is based on good theology. Just like you don't really have very good theology if it does not spur you on to loving good deeds, but so also this is the opposite and equal truth that you'll never live a good life unless you have first understood the mercies of God in Romans 1-11. through and to say that is actually much more countercultural than the first. To say that there's a, a kind of life that is desirable, that is good, that is godly, and you'll never attain to live that kind of life unless you first have good theology, unless you first know God and have understood the mercies of God. It, it's very countercultural because there's many in our society who would say this. I mean, this is sort of the, the, the feeling of the day is it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're a good person. As long as you're kind, as long as, long as you're tolerant, as, as long as you're understanding of others and you don't hurt others or, or demean others or get in their way, as long as you're living a good life, it really doesn't matter what you believe. That's the essence of our culture. But Paul says, therefore, he, he says, if you're going to live this kind of life, it must first be based on certain understandings of who God is and what God is like and what God has done for us. Culture might say Paul could have skipped the trouble of the first 11 chapters. You know, just go into living a good life. But he does not. He writes about it and he says, Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. He says you can't possibly live a good life unless you have first seen and grasped the mercy 
of God. I think Paul is really on to something here. If we're trying to live a good life, if we're trying to live a moral life, but we have not had any grasp of of the mercy of God in Christ, then, then what are we doing? We're just living a life according to our own standards for our own benefit to, to please ourselves and our desire of how we want to live. We're still simply living for ourselves. Well, there's no more nobility in that. But when first you are privileged and humbled to survey the mercies of God, to understand who he is and what he has done for us in Christ, then it changes us. It changes us from the inside out. It, it changes your heart to survey the wonders of God's love for us. And now we begin to live for something more than ourselves. You see, what's the whole point of Thanksgiving? I don't mean the holiday here. The point of the holiday is to watch football and eat turkey. But what's the point of actually giving thanks, of having a thankful spirit? The Bible over and over tells us to be thankful, to have a thankful heart. What's the point of it all? Well, the point of being thankful is not merely to try to become a better person, not merely to put on an attitude of gratitude, to try to be good, not merely to set aside our materialism for a day. The point of being a thankful person is that we might magnify the mercy of God in Christ. That by being thankful, we might give credit where credit is due and magnify what God has done for us. That's the point of our giving thanks. And and so we can't move on to thanksgiving or to worship or to obedience until first we've done this. Until first we have begun by surveying the mercies of God. Until we can get to the first part of the therefore, we can't move on to the second part. Until we can first, and I think if we're going to do this really well and to do this really adequately, we'd just have to go back to Romans 1.1 and just preach real slowly and real deliberately through those first 11 chapters and just try to paint the panorama of the vast mercies of God for us in Christ, of his mercies in creation, his mercies in redemption, in reconciliation, in, in uh, taking away the enmity between us and himself and restoring us as friends through Christ, all of his mercies in, in the gift of the Spirit, all of his mercies in, in providence and his sovereignty, the mercies of his grace and his love, zooming in really close on the cross because that's where we see the most dense portrait of the mercy of God, the love of God, as well as the holiness and the justice of God, the righteousness of God and the grace of God, all portrayed there in Jesus Christ's self-giving of himself as the payment for our sins. And I think we'd have to to zoom in and just stay there for a while and saturate ourselves in the mercies of God because that's how we move our soul to give thanks. That's how we can give thanks without it just being sort of a, an action that I, I really need to, to kick myself to make myself do, to, to goad myself along, but it actually comes now from a heart that is thankful. As the song says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count as loss and pour contempt on all my pride. How do I get myself to that place where I pour contempt on my, my riches and my gain? Well, it's when I have first surveyed the wondrous cross. When I have become beholden to the mercies of God, thanksgiving always begins with a view of God's mercies. But secondly, thanksgiving is marked by worship. Thanksgiving is marked by worship. This is what thanksgiving is. It's the essence of thanksgiving is to worship. Look at the end of Romans chapter 11 if you have your Bibles open. In Romans 11, verse 33, this really is the end of the first section. He's just spent 11 chapters 
doing what we've just said, surveying the mercies of God, going deep in these truths. And, and it's no accident that he gets to the end of that and he comes to chapter 11, verse 33, and it says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. He gets to the end of those 11 chapters and he just bursts forth in worship. It's it's just a spontaneous expression of his praise to God. And it's a completely logical response because when you've spent 11 chapters reviewing the mercy of God, you worship. When you're in the presence of greatness, see, this isn't just a spiritual truth, but this is a human truth, that when you're in the presence of something that is truly great and praiseworthy, you praise it. That's what we do. That's how human beings are wired. When we see something praiseworthy, we praise it. If you're standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon and there's not some whispered utterances of praise coming out of your mouth for the beauty of the scene, there's something wrong. Because we see greatness and we see beauty and and we just naturally praise. Or if you see the sun setting over the Pacific Ocean, it's natural to praise, to, to exclaim the beauty of the scene. Or maybe it's in the presence of beautiful music or the presence of great food. Maybe it's a, a perfectly cooked cheeseburger. That can el- elicit just as honest of worship from the human heart, at least from mine, as anything else can. Because when we're in the presence of greatness, we praise it. And so how much more with God? How much more with God, if, if a, a, a meal from In-N-Out can elicit our praise, how much more when we survey the mercies of God in all of his goodness, in all of his acts, in all of his love towards us, does it call forth worship from ourselves. And this is what Paul does. He worships. And now in chapter 12, verse 1, he urges us on as well. He says, I'm appealing to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's urging us on as well to worship the Lord. He's telling us to give a sacrifice. He's telling us to give a sacrifice. And this is the truth. That any time something is eminently worthy of praise, we are happy to offer sacrifice. When something is truly worthy of our praise, we're happy to offer sacrifice. And if we're not happy, we have not yet perceived the praiseworthiness of the object. It, you might think an umami burger, I, when I'm in the presence of that, I'm happy to sacrifice $20 in an hour of my time because it's worth it. And when we behold the mercy of God, when our eyes truly get a a real, honest, spiritual glimpse of the mercy of God in Christ, it's worth it. It's praiseworthy. We're happy to offer sacrifice. And Paul tells us here, offer our bodies a living sacrifice. This is the sacrifice that the Lord desires of us is, is no less than this. It's ourselves. It's a big sacrifice. But he's eminently worthy. He's eminently worthy and so it becomes not, not difficult when we have beheld the mercy of God. It sounds really demanding of God to say, I, I, I demand your entire selves, unless we've just finished reading the first 11 chapters of Romans, in, in which case we say, yes, that's what I was about to offer anyway. What else can we do? Think of it this way. Imagine that you go out of town for a time, you're traveling for work or for vacation, and you go out of town, and while you're away, you arrange with one of your friends 
to come over to your house, sort of keep an eye on it, water all your plants so they don't die while you're gone. And, and so you do this, and he, he's, he does this, he does this favor for you. And when you return from your trip, he says, oh, by the way, one day I came over and, and a bill had showed up on your kitchen table, and I, don't worry about it, I went ahead and paid it for you so it wouldn't be late. How do you respond? Well, you probably need to know what bill it was that he paid for you, because that's going to determine what your response is like. This is what you need to do. You need to survey your friend's mercies and see exactly how generous he was with you. And that will help you determine the appropriate response to what he's done. And so you ask, well, thank you. What, what bill was it that you paid? And if he says, well, you know, it was your phone bill. It was $75 or whatever it is. I didn't want your phone to get turned off while you were away. You say, wow, thank you. Right? But what if you ask him and he says, oh, it, it was that bill from the IRS for $50,000 of back taxes that you couldn't possibly ever pay. And they said that they were going to come next week and confiscate all your goods and, and drag you off to prison. What, what do you say now? It seems like saying, thank you. Doesn't, doesn't quite cut it anymore. Right? At this point, you throw yourself at his feet and you say, command me. Right? Whatever you say, I will do. This is what Paul is saying here. He says, Therefore, in view of God's mercies, when we have this picture in our mind now of what God has done for us in Christ, we don't simply say, wow, thank you. Right? We, we offer ourselves, we offer the entirety of our being in light of the mercies of God where he says in chapter 5, God demonstrates his love for us in this, so this is what he's done, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We had a debt that we couldn't possibly pay. And Christ came while we were sinners, while we were actually hostile to him, he still came and he found it and he paid that bill by going to the cross, even though it required him to die in order that we might live. And so Paul says, offer your body as a living sacrifice to God. He says we are to offer our bodies a living sacrifice. He also says, holy and acceptable. Our sacrifice is to be living, it's to be holy and acceptable. Now, if we remember the Old Testament regulations for just a moment, we think all the way back to Leviticus, what it says about sacrifice. It gives all the re- rules, all the regulations. And one of the rules was, when you bring a sacrifice to God, if you're going to bring one of the sheeps from your fold or one of the, the bulls or whatever it is, it had to be perfect. It, it described that you couldn't simply take, okay, this is kind of the less desirable lamb, let me take that one and that way I'll get to keep the good ones. It described that you had to choose one that was blameless and perfect, without blemish or spot. It had to be the perfect lamb. You had to choose the absolute best from your flock. And that was the one that you were allowed to dedicate to the Lord. You literally had to pick the best one. And and so Paul says, when we offer ourselves to God, that we must be holy. A sacrifice that is acceptable to God. Now there's typically two types of response to something like this. There's going to be one category of person who hears that, that that the sacrifice of ourselves must be holy, it must be perfect, and and they're going to say, no problem, that's cool, I'm good, I'm holy, God will accept me. Most of the time, these are the people who who need to reread the first part of Romans, spend a little more time in chapter 3, have a little bit more humility. And then there's a second type of person who doesn't respond with pride, but they respond with despair. They know their sin, they know they're not holy, And they say, 
you know, how can we possibly come before the Lord? How can we possibly do this? How can we possibly offer ourselves as a holy sacrifice? And I think the key here is in the Old Testament again. The key here is in the Old Testament, in the sacrificial regulations. We, we have to recognize not only did they have to offer the correct sacrifice, but they had to offer it through the correct mediator. You couldn't just go out in your field and put some rocks on top of each other and slay a bull and, and, and pretend you had offered sacrifice. In order to do it, you had to take the animal and bring it to the priest in the temple. And he had to follow the correct regulations. You had to have the correct mediator if your sacrifice was going to be acceptable to God. And so it is with us. To offer ourselves to God, we must have a mediator. And the Bible says there is one mediator between God and man. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. It means we can never go before God to offer ourselves to him simply trusting in our own goodness. That means we never presume on God that, that the life that we have lived will be pleasing and acceptable to him. Rather, we only go to God through Christ. And the scripture says that, that when we place our faith in the work of Christ on the cross, it says we are united to Christ. It says we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, that we now offer ourselves to God and he looks and he sees that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness and he's not seeing us anymore. He's seeing Christ. And now it is a sacrifice that's acceptable, that has come, that's holy, and that is pleasing to God. This is what we mean when we say that our worship together as a church will always strive to be gospel-centered and Christ-focused. This is what we mean, that, that we would never presume that, that we can simply give an offering to God and have it be acceptable just because it comes from us. Rather, we always and only ever come to God through Christ, clinging to Christ, trusting in the righteousness of Christ, trusting that what Christ has done has fully satisfied the penalty of all of our sins, and therefore we are acceptable to God, not in ourselves, not in ourselves, but acknowledging our need for Christ. So thanksgiving, it begins with a view of God's mercy. Second, it's marked by worship. That's the essence of what thanksgiving is. And third, thanksgiving always leads towards transformation. Thanksgiving always leads towards transformation. Look at verse 2 here in Romans 12. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, we recognize here that what he's saying is, is that transformation completes the logical flow of this passage. There, there's a logical progression that he has noted. First, we see the mercy of God. In looking to Christ and looking to the cross, we see God's mercy, and that causes us to worship. When we see it, we worship, and when we worship, we are transformed. That there is a, a connection between these things, that they flow one to the other. Mercy will naturally lead to worship, and worship will lead naturally to transformation. You see, this is another principle of being a human, that we always become like that which we worship. We always become like that which we worship. Psalm 115, the psalmist there is, is cataloging some of the false gods of the nations and some of the idols that they worship. And he points out that these are idols that they have eyes, but they can't see. They're blind. They have ears that are carved on the side of their head, but they're deaf. They cannot hear. And then verse 8, he says, those who make them become like them. 
so do all who trust in them. You see, this is a spiritual principle of life, that you become like that which you worship. And those who uh, worship idols that are blind, they become blind themselves. Those who worship idols that are deaf become deaf themselves. Those who worship idols that are violent or angry or self-centered or arrogant, as the idols always are, they also grow in those traits as well. Whereas the opposite is also true, that those who worship Jesus find themselves growing in Christ-likeness. Those who worship Jesus become more like Jesus because this is the way it works. We become like the thing which we worship. And listen, this is not what we're saying. We're not saying that, that we be, you know, if, we come, if we just go to church, that then we become more like Jesus because it's possible to go to church and not worship. Worship is, is deeper. It's what your heart is truly set on. The things which you love and treasure and long for and look to to provide you with life, that's what you worship. That's what you worship. The thing that you think will provide you with true life, that is what the thing that you will begin to resemble. And this is the truth. Every human being is a worshiper. Every human being is a worshiper. I've heard it said that, that being a worshiper as a human, it's like having a fire hose that you just cannot turn off. It's always on. It's always on full power. You can aim it at different things. You can aim it at the burning house, or you can aim it at the bushes, or at the fire hydrant, but you can't turn it off. And so is the worshiping impulse of human beings. We can aim it in a different direction. We can worship different things, but we can't decide, I'm not going to worship, because to be human is to be a worshiper. And that means that no one is neutral. No one is ever neutral in life. No one is ever stationary in life. If we become like what we worship, and everyone is a worshiper, then all of us are becoming like something. We're all being formed into the image of something that we are worshiping. Either you're worshiping Christ, and therefore your heart is being made more and more into the image of Christ, or you're worshiping a false god that is no god at all, and you're becoming more and more in the image of that god. But we're never neutral. We're never stationary. And this is why... I'm so passionate at New Life Burbank that every Sunday we preach the gospel. That every Sunday we hold up this picture of Jesus Christ and, and try to paint the whole panorama of the mercies of God and put these things before us and hold out his grace and demonstrate his love and his mercy. Everything that he's done for us in Christ so that on a regular basis, week after week, we're seeing and beholding the mercy of God and, and therefore we're worshiping. Our hearts are being drawn to it. In view of God's mercy, we're worshiping him. And that means we are also being changed. We're also being transformed. Our hearts are drawn closer towards his loveliness. And that at that deep heart level now, we'll see as we hold up his mercy, we'll see in our hearts the exceeding worth, the exceeding value, and we will delight in what God has done for us in Christ. And that in delighting, we will worship. And in worshiping, we will be changed. And then... When we start getting into chapters 12 and chapters 13 and talking about all the practical issues of life, how then do we live? When we get to that point, then it'll click. It'll make sense because we're already worshiping the God who is like that. We're already worshiping the God who humbled himself, so, so being humble ourselves makes sense. We're already worshiping a God who, who in Christ put others' needs ahead of his own. So the call from the scriptures for us to do that makes sense. These things become more logical for us. You know, every year, right around this time, 
you see it all, everywhere, all over the internet. People begin to point out the irony of what happens this week. That here we have Thanksgiving on Thursday, and, and we're proclaiming our thanks, and we're all thankful for what we have, and yet the very next day is the biggest commercial market day of the year, and we all go out and, and hoard new possessions because what we have is never enough. We always re- recognize that irony, and we say, oh yeah, irony, and then we go shopping. But the real danger, and there is danger there, we recognize that, but the real danger is deeper than that. The danger is not from Thursday to Friday, but every week from Sunday to Monday. That on Sunday we'll worship, and yet on Monday we'll go back to life. We'll go back to life like nothing has changed. Instead, I desire for us transformation, growth, maturity, change. And therefore, we work backwards. If what we want is transformation, therefore, let us worship Christ. If we want to worship, therefore, let us behold the mercy of God in Christ. Let us look to Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. And and as we see that, as our, our vision is filled with the picture of God's mercy, we worship and we are changed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is our heart's desire today that that you will give us spiritual sight that we might see Christ, our Savior, that we might see his love for us demonstrated at the cross, that we might see the mercies of God and that our hearts might be sweetly drawn to him, that we might not be reluctant, but Father, that in your grace you will call us to yourself and that we will be overwhelmed with the sight and the praiseworthiness of what we have seen, that we will worship in spirit and in truth from a deep heart that delights in Christ. And Father, that you will therefore use this progress for our growth in Christ and our transformation. Father, we ask this for the good of the church and the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray.